Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will get to hear the first few chapters of our book, Radiant, 50 Remarkable Women in Church History, by Richard Hanula. This audio has been recorded by Pastor Toby Sumter. If you'd like to hear the rest of the book, you can get that audio for now exclusively on the Canon app. Download the Canon app in your app store of choice and subscribe. Introduction. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Psalm 34, 5. From the days when Mary and Martha opened their home to Jesus, the Christian church has relied on the steadfast faith and tireless work of women. Women were the last to leave the scene of Christ's crucifixion and the first to proclaim his resurrection. Lydia, a successful businesswoman, was the first person in Philippi to turn to Christ through the Apostle Paul's preaching. Her home became Paul's headquarters and the location of the first Christian church in the region. Priscilla and her husband helped Paul found the church in Ephesus and led Apollos to a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of believers. The Roman philosopher Celsus mocked the fast-growing Christian faith in the Roman Empire, saying women spread Christianity by gossiping Christ at the laundry. In the 4th century, Libanius, the famous pagan orator who assisted Emperor Julian's efforts to revive paganism in the empire, was forced to say, Good heavens, what remarkable women are found among the Christians. Stories of the heroes of the church's past can touch the hearts and minds of believers in powerful ways. It is the Bible's own way of communicating truth by setting before us flesh and blood examples of God's people. The role played by women through the power of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of souls from every nation, tribe, people, and language is not as well known as it should be. The following sketches trace the witness of women through 2,000 years of church history, from brave souls who died as martyrs in the arena, to zealous medieval queens leading their husbands and their subjects to Jesus, from Western missionaries forsaking the comforts of home to bring the gospel to the four corners of the globe, to native women in remote lands pointing their fellow tribesmen to Christ. These short sketches simply scratch the surface of the women's lives. Effort was made to honestly depict them in the midst of their unique time and circumstances. However, it was not possible within a few pages to thoroughly explore their strengths and weaknesses, faith and doubts, truths and errors. To learn much more about these Christian women, follow the trail marked out in For Further Reading at the end of the book. It is my hope that the reader boy or girl, man or woman, will be inspired by the grace of God to follow in their steps as they followed in Christ's. Early Church Persecution and Expansion During the first 300 years of the church, Christians experienced seasons of calm and periods of storm. Under some Roman emperors and governors who believed that devotion to paganism meant loyalty to the government, they suffered intense persecution. Christians who refused to bow down to the pagan gods of Rome suffered cruel public deaths as enemies of the state. Perpetua 
and Crispina were two of hundreds of women who died for Christ in the arena. At other times, the state left Christians largely alone, and the faith was often advanced by influential women from the great aristocratic families of the empire. After Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in the empire, mothers like Monica and Anthusa were free to raise their children in the Christian faith without interference from the government. When the Roman Empire collapsed, women played a prominent role in bringing the good news of Christ to the far-flung peoples that the Romans called barbarians. Chapter 1. Perpetua. Not in her own power, but in God's. 181-203. In 202, the Roman governor at Carthage in North Africa ordered the arrest of Christians. Among those rounded up was Perpetua, the young mother of a one-year-old boy. She came from a noble family, her father was a pagan, and her mother a Christian. Her husband was no longer around, either he had died or he had abandoned her because of her Christian beliefs. At that time, Christians could escape punishment by offering a sacrifice to the emperor as a god. After her arrest, Perpetua was held with four Christian friends, including her pastor, Saturus, in a private home under a strong guard. Her father came and pleaded with her to deny Christianity. For the sake of your child and our family, he said with tears in his eyes, reject Christ. Perpetua pointed to a pitcher sitting on a shelf and said, Father, can that pitcher change its name? No, her father answered. Neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. Her determined reply made his heart pound and his cheeks flush red. Grabbing her by the shoulders, he shook her, demanding that she renounce her faith. I am a Christian, she said. Seeing that his daughter could not be persuaded either by pleadings or threats, he went away, hanging his head. A few days later, guards moved Perpetua and her friends from the house and cast them into the dungeon of a large prison. The heat and stench from the prisoners packed together like cord wood was nearly unbearable. Oh, the horror and darkness, Perpetua said. I have never been in such a place. Soldiers cursed and whipped the prisoners at will. But worse than the physical torture was Perpetua's concern for her baby. After a few days, the chief jailer moved them to a less crowded section of the prison, and a friend brought her infant son to her. She thanked God for the ability to nurse her famished child. Then she directed her friend to place her son in the care of her mother. After several days, word spread that the Christian prisoners would soon stand trial. Perpetua's father came to her in prison, his face pale and drawn, and his eyes red and swollen. Daughter, he said, have pity on your father, if I still deserve to be called your father. Do not deliver me up to the scorn of men. Think of your mother and your brothers. Have compassion on your child that cannot live without you. Lay aside your courage and resolve, for we cannot bear the thought of your suffering. Then he knelt at her feet, kissed her hands, and sobbed, saying, My lady, please relent. Perpetua bit her lip and fought back tears. Father, do not grieve, she said. Nothing will happen but what pleases God. Know that we are not placed in our own power, but in God's. Sighing and bowing his head, he left her. 
The next day, guards led Perpetua and her four friends to the town hall, crowded with gawking spectators. The Christian prisoners stood before the provincial governor. First, he questioned the three men, and each one boldly professed Jesus Christ. While the governor was examining the men, Perpetua's father appeared, holding her son. Pulling her aside, he whispered, Perpetua, please consider the misery that you will bring on this innocent child. As Perpetua gently refused her father's request, the governor overheard their conversation. What? he bellowed. Will neither the gray hairs of a father whom you are going to make miserable, nor the tender innocence of a child which your death will leave an orphan move you? Stretching an opened hand toward her, the governor said, Just make a sacrifice to the emperor, and you shall be freed. Perpetua looked him in the eyes and said, I will not do it. Are you a Christian, then, he asked. I am a Christian, Perpetua answered. The governor ordered a soldier to strike her face for her obstinacy. The blow knocked her back, but she would not deny Christ nor offer incense to the emperor. Sweeping his gaze over the Christian prisoners, the governor said, Then you shall all be condemned to die by wild beasts. Their execution would be part of the games in the arena for the entertainment of the crowds. Guards brought them back to prison. For several days they were chained with their hands and feet in stocks. The Holy Spirit inspired me to pray for nothing but patience under bodily pains, Perpetua said. But then the chief jailer, seeing how the Christians bore their torments with such courage and grace, took pity on them. He removed them from the stocks and allowed them to have visitors. Perpetua's father, looking haggard and exhausted, came to see her. Throwing himself on the ground, he begged her to recant her faith to save her life. I cannot, she told him. I am a Christian. After he left the prison, tears streamed down her cheeks, and she said, I was ready to die with sorrow to see my father in such deplorable condition. One of the prisoners condemned to die with Perpetua was a young woman named Felicitas, who was in her eighth month of pregnancy. As the day of their execution approached, Felicitas and Perpetua and the other Christian prisoners gathered together to pray that God would deliver her of her child. They had scarcely finished their prayer when Felicitas went into labor. When she shrieked from the pain of the contractions, one of the guards chided her, If you cry out in pain during childbirth, what will you do when you are thrown to the wild beasts? Now it is I who suffers, Felicitas said, but then there will be another in me that will suffer for me because I suffer for him. Moments later, her baby daughter was born. Felicitas put her in the care of a Christian woman who raised her as her own. By this time, even the chief jailer himself had turned to Christ through the example of Perpetua and her friends. He secretly did all that he could for them. I found the Lord's kindnesses to be very great, Perpetua said. In the days leading up to the games, their cell block was full of people, prisoners and visitors, curious to see these Christians who would rather die than give up their faith. If you do not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Saturus told them, you will one day face the judgment of God. Although we face death in the arena, we are happy, for we are in the hands of God. As more people came to gape at the Christian prisoners, Saturus smiled at them and said, tomorrow you will clap your hands at our death and applaud our murderers. But look carefully at our faces, that you may recognize them on that terrible day, when all men shall be judged.
the onlookers left them, astonished by their courage. Later, several of these people put their trust in Jesus Christ, too. When the day of execution arrived, guards led the Christian prisoners to the arena. An eyewitness reported, Joy sparkled in their eyes and appeared in all their gestures and words. Perpetua calmly walked with her eyes to the ground. When they reached the gate of the arena, guards tried to force them to wear the clothing of pagan priests and priestesses. Perpetua pushed the pagan garb aside, saying, We came here on our own accord, and we will not be forced to do anything contrary to our religion. The guards relented. Perpetua sang a psalm of praise as they entered the arena. When they walked past the governor's box, one of the Christian men said to him, You judge us in this world, but God will judge you in the next. Scourge them, the enraged crowd shouted. The governor ordered soldiers to lash each of the Christian prisoners with a whip. After they had received the bloody blows, they huddled together and gave thanks to God that they were counted worthy to suffer in the same way that Christ had suffered before Pilate. The men died first at the snapping jaws of a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. Then Perpetua and Felicitas faced a raging bull. It hooked Perpetua in its horns and threw her on her back. Perpetua arose and gathered her torn clothes around her. She ran to the aid of Felicitas who had been badly gored. Perpetua helped her to her feet, and they stood together arm in arm, expecting another charge of the bull. But guards led the women to a side gate for a time, while gladiators entered the arena to fight. A Christian friend brought Perpetua's brother to her. Stand firm in the faith and love one another, she told him. Don't be discouraged by my sufferings. As the games drew to a close, the spectators shouted for the blood of Perpetua and Felicitas. Guards dragged them to the center of the arena again, where they died by a gladiator's sword. Perpetua and Saturus wrote personal accounts of their persecution while in prison, and eyewitnesses wrote descriptions of their martyrdoms. These accounts spread the news of the steadfast faith and the courageous death of Perpetua and her friends, strengthening the resolve of the Christians of North Africa and beyond. Chapter 2 Crispina, A Clear Conscience for Christ, 274-304 The last great wave of Roman persecution against Christians began in 303 under Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian thought that the empire would only survive through a return to Roman traditions and the old pagan religion, so he ordered the destruction of Christian buildings, the arrest of Christian ministers, and the rounding up and burning of all Bibles and Christian books. Finally, as a sign of loyalty to the state, the emperor demanded that Christians offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. From one end of the empire to the other, tens of thousands of Christians were arrested. Many abandoned their faith under the threat of death, but others remained true to Christ in the face of terrible cruelties. In December 304, Crispina, a beautiful young mother from a prominent family in North Africa was arrested for refusing to offer pagan sacrifices. Soldiers hauled her before the Roman governor, named Anulinus. You have spurned the laws of our lord the emperor, Anulinus said. You are required to offer sacrifice to our gods for the welfare of the emperor in accordance with the law. I have never sacrificed, Crispina answered, and I shall not do so 
except to the one true God and to our Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, who was born and died. Leave your superstitions and submit to the sacred rites of the gods of Rome, the governor said. I know of no other gods besides my God, the Almighty One, whom I worship daily. You are a stubborn and defiant woman, Anulinus said. You will soon feel the force of our laws against your will. Crispina stood unbowed and said, Whatever happens to me, I shall gladly suffer it for the faith which I hold steadfastly. You are insane, Anulinus shouted, veins bulging in his neck and forehead. Away with your superstitions. Worship the Roman gods. Every day I worship, Crispina answered, but I only worship my Lord, the living and true God, and no other besides him. The emperor's edict must be obeyed, demanded the governor. I will obey the edict, she said, but the edict that I obey is the one given to me by my Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not sacrifice to our gods, if you do not obey the emperor's edict, I shall order your head cut off. You shall be forced to submit. You know very well that the entire province of Africa has offered sacrifice. They shall never find it easy to make me offer sacrifice to demons, Crispina said. I only sacrifice to the Lord who has made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. You blaspheme. You think our pagan gods are not worthy of you, the governor sneered. You shall be forced to honor them if you wish to stay alive to offer any worship at all. A religion is worthless which forces people to practice it against their will, Crispina replied. Guards, the red-faced governor shouted, take her, cut off her hair and shave her head. Turn her beauty into shame. The guards pulled her away, did as the governor ordered, and brought her back to the council chambers. Now will you sacrifice to our gods? he asked. I will not, Crispina answered. I have told you over and over. I am ready to suffer any tortures that you lay upon me rather than dirty my soul with idols which are merely the creation of men. If you will not worship our venerable gods, he said, your head shall be cut off. I should be very happy to lose my head for the sake of my God, she said, for I will not sacrifice to your silly, deaf, and dumb idols. My God, who lives forever, ordained me to be born. He gave me salvation through the saving waters of baptism. He is at my side, helping me and giving me strength so that I will not commit sacrilege. Why must we endure this irreligious Christian woman any longer? Anulinus said. Then he wrote out his sentence and read it aloud. Since Crispina has clung to her infamous superstition and will not offer sacrifice to our gods according to the sacred decrees of the emperor, she shall be put to death with the sword. The governor ordered that the sentence be carried out at once. As the executioner stepped forward, Crispina said, I bless God, who has chosen to free me from your hands. Thanks be to God. Soon after her death, Christians wrote down the account of her martyrdom, and it circulated widely encouraging believers to hold fast to Christ until the end. Chapter 3 Marcella of Rome Full of Christ 325-410 Around the year 345, a rich and powerful leader in Rome came courting a young widow named Marcella. Marcella hailed from a wealthy and prominent family counting Roman senators and consuls among her ancestors. She had married young, but her aristocratic husband died seven months later. 
If you will marry me, the Roman ruler said, I will leave you all my money. If I wish to marry, she told him, I would look for a husband and not an inheritance. From her earliest days, Marcella trusted in Christ as her Lord and Savior. When the great church leader, Athanasius, came to Rome, he spent time with Marcella's family. He gave her a copy of a book he had written entitled The Life of St. Anthony. Anthony had been a wealthy Roman citizen living in Egypt. His life changed when he read Christ's command in the gospel, Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Anthony sold his estates and gave away all his money to the poor. He retired to the desert to live a solitary life of self-denial and prayer. Although Anthony led a hard life, he lived it rejoicing. Strangers knew him, Athanasius wrote, by the joy on his face. Over time, other men gathered around Anthony to learn from him and serve God together. Inspired by Anthony's example, Marcella decided not to remarry. She traded her colorful silk gowns and gold jewelry for a plain brown robe, the clothing of slave women, not the highborn, Forsaking both wealth and rank, a Christian friend said of Marcella, she sought the true nobility of poverty and lowliness. She turned her mansion into a place of prayer and a haven for outcasts. Soon other widows and young unmarried women joined her, forming a community of Christian women dedicated to prayer, scripture study, and service to the poor, one of the first of its kind in the empire. Before long, Marcella had given away all her fortune. She preferred to store her money in the stomachs of the needy, a friend said, rather than hide it in a purse. Marcella knew the Bible well and had mastered Greek, the language of the New Testament. Her delight in the divine scriptures was incredible, her minister observed. She was always singing from Psalm 119, Your words have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Knowing that Christians are called to strive, by the grace of God, to obey the scriptures, Marcella trained her companions to know God's word and to seek to obey it. She made it a point to live each hour in light of eternity, teaching her followers to daily present themselves as living sacrifices to God. She lived always, one observer said, in the thought that she must die. In 382, Jerome, the famous theologian and Bible scholar, came to Rome to begin work on a new translation of the scriptures into Latin. Marcella asked Jerome to teach her the word of God. At first he refused, but her persistence, like waves lapping on the seashore, won him over. For three years in Rome, Jerome translated several books of the Bible and met almost daily with Marcella. She never came without asking something about Scripture, Jerome said, nor did she immediately accept my explanation as satisfactory, but she proposed questions from the opposite viewpoint not for argument's sake, but to learn answers to objections that she perceived could be raised. She made rapid progress in her understanding of the scriptures under his instruction. Jerome marveled at how quickly she learned. What had been for me the fruit of long study and meditation, he said, she learned and made her own. Jerome praised Marcella to others, calling her a student of the scriptures, a woman of virtue, ability, and holiness. Jerome was well known for his sharp tongue that lashed out at his critics. Marcella gently exposed his sinful temper and lack of charity, 
In one letter to her, he harshly criticized those who disagreed with him. I know that as you read these words, he wrote, you will knit your brows and worry that my freedom of speech is sowing the seeds of fresh quarrels. If you could, you would gladly put your finger on my mouth to prevent me from even speaking. After Jerome left Rome to continue his translation work in Syria and Palestine, some preachers began to spread heresies among the Roman Christians. Marcella took the lead in shining the light of God's word on their dark, unscriptural teaching. She called the false teachers to account and rallied church leaders to defend the faith. Jerome followed the conflict with great interest from afar. When the heretics were vanquished, he wrote, This glorious victory began with Marcella. She was the source and cause of this great blessing. In the later years of Marcella's life, the Roman Empire began to collapse as marauding tribes chipped away at the frontiers. Then in 410, the Visigoths, a Germanic tribe, overran Rome and ransacked the city. Visigoth warriors broke into Marcella's home, demanding she give them her jewels and treasure. They have long since been sold to aid the poor, she told them. Tugging on her coarse dress, she said, This is the extent of my earthly treasure now. The intruders pulled Marcella away from her young disciple, Principia. They whipped Marcella and beat her bloody with clubs, threatening to do the same to Principia if she did not reveal the whereabouts of her valuables. She fell at the soldiers' feet and begged them not to harm Principia. All the while she prayed for God to soften their hearts. Then suddenly the men stopped beating Marcella and hauled her and Principia away to a church for safety. With tears of joy, she prayed, O Lord, I give you thanks for protecting Principia and answering my prayers. In the wake of the Visigoth raid, famine stalked the land like a ravenous wolf. Marcella and her friends were homeless, without food or supplies. Although severely wounded, Marcella thanked God for his mercy. By heaven's grace, she said, the invasion has found me a poor woman, not made me one. Marcella's injuries broke her health. She quickly lost strength, but she never stopped smiling. Her sisters in Christ kept vigil over her. Shortly before she died, Marcella told her friends, Now I go without daily bread, but I shall not feel hunger, since I am full of Christ. Chapter 4 Monica, the Mother of These Tears 335 to 390. In 370 in North Africa, a Christian mother knelt, weeping in prayer for her son. As Monica's streaming tears wet the ground, she cried out to God, Heavenly Father, preserve Augustine's heart, for great waves of temptation threaten to destroy him. O oh Lord, that he might live before your eyes. A few weeks earlier, she had acquiesced to her husband Patrick's plan to send their 16-year-old son, Augustine, to school in Carthage, the largest city in the province. Our small town is no place to educate a boy of these talents, he had said. He must become cultured to do great things. Monica's pagan husband could not understand her concerns for her son's faith as he encountered a sinful city far from home. Monica alone raised Augustine to love and serve Christ. While sitting on her lap, he had heard the good news of Jesus Christ and learned the songs of praise that she sang to the Savior of her soul. Through all her instruction and prayer for him, 
She held fast to the promise of God's word. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 As Augustine packed for Carthage, Monica urged him to cling to Christ and live a holy life. But once away from home in an exciting city of the Roman Empire, the temptations to sin swept him away like a leaf in a raging river. Though he dearly loved his mother, he leapt into the wicked ways of his new friends. I despised my mother's advice and went headlong on my way, Augustine later admitted. When not studying, he filled his days with stealing, carousing, watching evil entertainments and sins of every kind. I plunged into the filth and wallowed in it, Augustine said. I even used to pretend that I had committed sins which I had not done in order to impress my friends. Rejecting Christianity, Augustine embraced the popular philosophies of the day and grew proud. I will make a great name for myself, he said. Seized with fear at such news, Monica warned him, My son, I fear the crooked path you are walking, for that way is walked by those who turn their backs toward God and not their faces. Seeking out her bishop for help, Monica pleaded, Will you please speak to Augustine? Show him the errors of his ways, and teach him what is good. The bishop shook his head, for he knew well Augustine's heart and mind at the time. He is not yet ready to be taught, the bishop told her. He is full of self-conceit with the novelty of these new ideas. But leave him alone for a while. Only pray to the Lord for him. He himself will find out by his reading what his mistake is, and how great is its sinfulness. Monica unwilling to take no for an answer, wept, gripped the bishop's hand like a starving beggar, and implored him to speak with Augustine. No, he said firmly. Now go away and leave me. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. The bishop's words, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish, sounded to her as if they had come from heaven. Monica wept and prayed for Augustine never losing hope that God would save his soul. Augustine, she often told him, the son of these tears shall not perish. Her wayward son was not the only challenge that Monica faced in her family. Patrick, although generally kind, had a quick and violent temper. At times he lashed out at his wife, children, and servants with cruel words. He walked in the ways of his pagan religion and failed in countless ways to be a faithful husband to Monica but she bore it with patience and grace, seeking to point him to the living God. She tried to win him to you, Augustine later wrote in a prayer, speaking to him of you by her virtues through which you made her beautiful, so that her husband loved, respected, and admired her. Monica prayed as fervently for her husband's salvation as she did for her son's, and God granted her request. Over time, Patrick became willing to hear his wife tell him about Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he promises to all who come to him. To her great joy and thanksgiving, Patrick finally put his trust in Christ, repented of his sins, made a public profession of his faith, and was baptized. And this came in the nick of time, because a short time later, he died suddenly. Once in the midst of Monica's deep grief over the state of her son's soul, she had a dream. In the dream, Monica was weeping and standing on a large wooden ruler, when a shining youth, smiling and joyful, approached her. 
What is the matter? The Shining One asked. Monica told him that she was bewailing her son's rebellion against God and his headlong rush to hell. Rest contented, he told her. Where you are, there your son is also. Then Monica looked up and saw Augustine standing near her on the wooden ruler. She awoke from her dream with renewed confidence that God would rescue her son from his rebellion. The years passed and Augustine became a respected teacher, but he continued to reject the Lord. At age 30, he moved from North Africa to Milan in Italy to become one of the head instructors of the city, bringing his widowed mother with him. At that time, the great preacher Ambrose was the bishop of Milan. Augustine went to hear his sermons, not because he wanted to know Jesus, but to listen to his eloquent words. Augustine told Ambrose that he did not believe in Christ. To Augustine's surprise, Ambrose accepted him in love. That man welcomed me as a father, Augustine said. I began to love him first not as a teacher of the truth, but simply as a man who was kind and generous to me. Gradually, Augustine began to hear the truth of God in Ambrose's sermons, and he started to read the Bible himself. A friend gave him a book on the life of St. Anthony, and Augustine saw how the grace of God could transform a person. Through it all, Monica prayed for his salvation and urged him to trust in Christ. As Augustine's doubts about the truth of Christianity faded, fears rushed in to take their place. Fears that his many sins could never be forgiven. One day, overcome with guilt, he went into the garden to pour his heart out to God. Suddenly a storm rose up within his heart, bringing with it a downpour of tears. To avoid embarrassment, he ran alone to the far end of the garden, flung himself down under a fig tree, and cried out to God, How long, O Lord, will you be angry with me forever? O Lord, do not remember my many sins. While Augustine wept and prayed, he heard the voice of a child singing the words, Pick up and read, pick up and read. He had never heard a children's song with those words before. Taking it as a message from God to read the scriptures, he grabbed his Bible, opened it at random, and read the first verses he saw. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 13, 13 and 14. At once, God opened Augustine's eyes to see that only Christ's goodness could cover his sins. He did not read any further. He did not need to. The Lord had changed his heart. He praised God for the forgiveness of his sins and the gift of faith. When I read the verse, Augustine said, it was as though my heart was filled with a light of confidence in Christ, and all the shadows of my doubt were swept away. He rushed inside and told Monica. Overjoyed, she threw her arms around her son, saying, This is what I have prayed for all these years. With eyes brimming with tears, she lifted her hands to heaven and prayed, Praise to you, O Lord, for you are able to do far more than we can even imagine. You have turned my mourning into joy. From that day, an overpowering hunger gripped Augustine to know the Bible and worship God. I can't have enough of the sweetness of meditating upon the depth of your word, he prayed. What tears I shed in your hymns 
and how I am moved by your sweet singing church. Dressed in a white robe, Augustine was baptized by Ambrose, along with many other converts, in a candlelit Easter Eve service. He resigned his teaching job in Milan to serve God back in North Africa. One evening, as they prepared to leave, Monica and Augustine talked late into the night. The greatest delights on earth, Monica said with a broad smile, cannot be compared with the joys of heaven. As we talked of God and eternal life with the saints, Augustine later wrote, Our hearts thirsted for the heavenly streams. It was as if we had lightly touched the first fruits of the Spirit in heaven. My son, Monica said, looking long into his eyes, I don't know why I'm still here on this earth. The only reason I wanted to stay a little longer in this life was to see you become a Christian before I died. Now God has granted me this beyond my hopes for I see that you despise the pleasures of this world and have become God's servant. A few days later, she fell deathly ill. You may lay this body of mine anywhere, she told Augustine, and the others holding vigil at her bed. Do not worry at all about that. Aren't you afraid to die and be buried so far from home? Someone asked her. Lifting her head, she answered in a weak voice, Nothing is far from God. Augustine knelt by her bedside, his head bowed and his eyes welling with tears. He held her hand and prayed until her spirit slipped away to be with God. I closed her eyes, Augustine said, and a great flood of sorrow swept into my heart. After burying his mother, Augustine returned to North Africa and eventually became the most important leader of the church in that region. Using the word of God as his sword, he fought many battles against false teachers in the church. For the last 40 years of his life, Augustine taught, preached, organized charities for the poor, and wrote books in defense of Christianity. His book, The Confessions, tells the story of his life, the influence of his mother, and the saving love of Jesus Christ. The entire book is a prayer to God, making it clear that he owed his salvation to the grace and mercy of God alone. O Lord, he wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Throughout his long life, Augustine never stopped showing people the way to Christ, and he always thanked the Lord for his mother. God of my heart, he said, I joyfully thank you for all those good deeds of my mother, for they were your gift to me to save and guide me. For in her body I was born into the light of time, and in her heart I was born into the light of eternity.